A very good morning to you and welcome to Money Talk Extra on Radio 3. I'm Peter Lewis. This morning on the programme, we're going to talk about the financial consequences of getting married. How much do you know about the personal finance habits of the person you're about to marry? I'll discuss five financial questions that you should be able to answer about your partner with an expert. Jimmy Lamb meets a Money Talk Extra listener who's about to get married and seeks advice to help her with her financial concerns. In our investment segment, I'll look at investing in bonds. As always on Money Talk Extra, we want to hear from you. Do you have any questions you would like to ask? Or maybe you would like to be our featured listener one week and have one of our financial experts look at your personal financial situation and offer advice. If so, then please email moneytalk at rthk.hk. We're also on Facebook, where you'll find links to helpful resources and can listen to this program again. Our Facebook page is Money Talk Extra on RTHK Radio 3. If you're thinking of proposing soon to your partner, then as well as knowing about each other personally and emotionally, you should also be at the stage where you know about each other financially. Money conversations are not easy, but it's important to have them. After all, money disagreements are one of the top reasons cited for divorce. When you get married, you're working as a team in many aspects of your life. That includes making financial decisions. So how much do you know about the financial habits of the person you are planning to marry? To help you decide, there are five essential money questions you should have asked your partner before you say, I do. What are those five questions? I want to discuss them with Chris Tay, who is Vice Chairman for Finance and Administration at the Institute of Financial Planners of Hong Kong. Now, there's five financial questions you should really know about your partner before you get married, and you should know their answer to them as well. So let's go through those questions. First of all, question number one, what are your financial goals? Why is it important to know about your partner's attitude towards money before you get married? Um, Learning about and understanding your partner's attitude towards money will help harmonize and strengthen your relationship. Our different attitudes and approaches to money or at least, you know, the spending and saving of it can be a major cause of stress in any relationship if you're forced on the matter are not in perfect harmony. And those are typical goals normally uh, would be including like, uh, you know, how about the wedding arrangement, buying a house, having a baby, child education, retirement or even start up a business. You know, uh, we should agree on the short term and the long-term goals and how you are both going to achieve them. When, uh, well, when you have achieved one goal, allow yourself a bit of break until you start working towards the next one. And is it important to be on the same page with your spouse in terms of big financial goals? Well, um, actually, well, um, well uh, whenever you know, uh, we would like to you know, uh, set the goals for the family, Actually, we should uh, have a, at least, I would say, more understanding about the kind of uh, value judgment and also the money concepts about, I would say, your partners. So that's why, you know, in order to, I would say, achieve the same goals, I think, uh, well, uh, I would say we should, uh, you know, compromise with our partners, I would say, you know, uh, just in terms of, uh, you know, whether uh, the, uh, he will be committed for this kind of, like, short-term goals and long-term goals together. Now, the second question you should know about your partner before you get married is what are your financial fears? So what do you mean by that? Um, well, well, the most uh, typical fear normally would be someone not, you know, I would say not self-behaved. You know, what does that mean? It means, I would say, you know, someone, you know, always, you know, I would say go for spending uh, that is not within their own 
affordability. You know, I would say you, you can mention that you know maybe your partner is one of the um, extravagant spender and also momentum uh, you know spender, and uh, sometimes you know he or she I'll say cannot differentiate uh, once against next. So I would say put it simply, you know they have no idea why to spend. And the other fear would be, uh, you know, I would say no budgeting. You know, no budgeting. That means, you know, they have no idea of when and how and what to spend. And uh, and uh, the other uh, typical fears that we uh, are always talking about would be no saving concept and also, you know, a lot of uh, debt burden. Those are the typical fears. You know, normally, you know, people, uh, uh, I would say, would learn based upon their upbringing. So they really come from almost what your parents teach you about money in the first place. Some of those fears that you harbour. Uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, your attitude towards money is shaped from a range of things, including your family uh, upbringing, friends, co-workers, and uh, even uh, media. And uh, of course, you know, because uh, you know those kind of a uh, concept uh, has been you know shaped from different things. So we should respect each other's viewpoint. And uh, you and your partner. You know, may have uh, had uh, quite different influences and have a uh, quite different attitudes to uh, because of that. So you need to understand where each other is coming from and respect each other's viewpoint. Now, the third question you should be able to ask your partner before you get married is: What are your non-negotiable items? In other words, things that you just can't change or are not prepared to change about your spending habits and your saving habits. Can you give some examples of that? Well, by forming a unity, I would say you know um, there's some non-negotiable items because some of the, uh, I would say some of the uh, ingrained, uh, I would say behavior, I would say can really really influence, I would say or or, or I would say would uh, also influence the relationship, uh, I would say for the family. For example, you know those kind of so-called long tail. That burden, you know, for example, you know, they, because they will come up into a snowball effect. You know, you know, the, the, I would say the family, uh, I would say at the end would set aside a lot of money to repay the debt together. And um, I would say uh, the other non-negotiable item would be, I would say, no financial goal, because uh, you know, actually, if we uh, fail to plan for our future, that is equivalent to we plan to fail for our future. So we should we should make it clear to our partner, right? And uh, and 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 also I would say one more uh, non-negotiable item would be um, we I would say we cannot accept you know our partner I would say um, I would say using any hooks and crooks to support finances because uh, you know that we need to accept the uh, reality you know by not committing any uh, illegal uh, or by using hooks and crooks to achieve our goals. Now, the fourth question you need to discuss with your partner before you get married is how will you blend your finances once you are married? An important question, isn't it? Well,、uh, that would be easier said than done. But、uh, but luckily, that well, in an Asian community, that would be easier to achieve.、Uh, while、uh, you will probably want a joint account, I would say for major spends、uh, as well as regular monthly outgoings like、um, uh, your rent or mortgage, utility bills, and housekeeping. It's worth considering keeping a separate bank accounts for the personal spending, and agree to put a fixed lump sum into your、uh, joint account each month to cover all your regular outgoings and any joint extra like holidays. And uh, um, alternatively, um, put everything into one joint account, and then agree on a monthly allowance that you can take out to spend as you like. 
So you don't necessarily need to pull everything and set up joint accounts for everything in some occasions, and people do tend to keep certain elements of their finances separate when they've got married? Well, uh, it, well I'll, I'll say, you know, uh, from a typical Asian perspective, we, we don't mind to have joint account. Yeah, we don't we don't want to have joint estate, you know, because you know. But 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 when you contrast, I'll say to the Western world, normally you know, they keep everything independent, separate. But uh, normally, you know, from an Asian perspective, actually, um, I'll say uh, owning some asset jointly, I'll say, would be a part of the process. And the final question that you really should know about your partner before you get married and agree with them: How will you spend and save? Yeah, and uh, well, when we are talking about. Um, Spend and save. You know, uh, we should look into a lot of cultural uh, issues. Uh, for, for example, if, if we are talking about financial support to our parents, you know, um, normally uh, uh, that would go into two main, uh, two major, I would say, consideration. Uh, first of all, you know, um, the financial dependence of our parents. The other would be uh, cultural issues. You know, uh, if our parents are financial independent. Well, um, it depends whether you know they need uh, well a kind of a genuine uh, financial support. I would say for must or not. And um, but from a cultural you know perspective, you know from a typical Asian family uh, perspective, actually um, you know um, uh, we are obedient to our parents, and uh, we would uh, actually we are one of the so-called retirement assets to our parents. So that would be very common, I would say, for those typical uh, Asian families to continue to support their parents uh, financially. That's Chris Tay from the Institute of Financial Planners of Hong Kong. If you can answer those five financial questions of each other, you're on a good footing to start married life. So now that you have set a date for the big day, how would you plan for the wedding and make sure you stay on budget? Jimmy Lam went to speak to Money Talk Extra listener Jenny Chan, who is engaged and will get married in December. Morning, Jenny. Uh, first of all, uh, congratulations. Uh, I know you're getting married very soon, right? Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. Um, I'm getting married in December this year. And uh, how long have you been uh, planning uh, your marriage with your husband to be? Um, I think around um, nine months. Um, he proposed in um, August last year. Did you two have some planning before he proposed to you? Yes, actually, we had discussion on marriage at the very beginning, um, and we always discuss for our dream wedding on how we would plan for our dream wedding, ideal wedding party. So actually, we have confirmed each other very early. Yeah. And do you think a wedding is a very costly thing to do? Yes, exactly. Actually, I think that it is very, it is a very horrible project. Actually, because you know that um, there are a large amount of expenses that we need to spend on, like um, pre-wedding photo taking, and renting wedding gowns, and also a photographer, makeup artist, and also we need to um, prepare some dress and also suits for our bridesmaid and groomsmen. And and you know that we are Chinese, we have a lot of Chinese tradition to follow. These all um, are lots of expenses that we need to take care of yeah and how much do you plan to spend uh, on your wedding uh, because we need to organize a wedding banquet that you know uh, which is the most expensive part, expensive part so I um, I predict um, the expenses will be uh, our budget will be um, 300,000 around yeah and what are the uh, challenges that you face uh, during the planning of the wedding um, I think that um, 
my expectation and also my husband to be's expectation and um, is a bit different somehow because you know that as a girl, um, wedding is very important for us. So um, we want to uh, strive for um, having uh, the best gong, the best makeup artist, maybe um, the best photographer somehow. So, but my um, my boyfriend would like to have. Um, um, Like a、uh, not so costly wedding. And are you two buying a new flat? And、uh, do you plan to have kids? And do you need to set aside some money for the future? Actually, we have bought our own flats already.、Um, but for kids,、uh, we don't have、um, this plan at this moment because we want to enjoy the life of both of two at this moment first. But、uh, maybe we will change our mind two or three years later.、Um, maybe until we、um, we have better career and also our mindset become more mature and. Are ready to be parents,、um, but I think that if we really want to have kids, we we need to have a good plan on our finance because、uh, I can't imagine how much we need to spend on our kids because you know that pe- parents nowadays are prepared so well for them. I know that even some parents.、Uh, Buy flats for their kids long time ago, <laughs> so that they don't need to worry about their their future, their marriage. So I'm not sure if I can afford like afford that like this, but I'm sure I will try my best to get to give them the best things. Yeah. What challenges do you have in mind? And because we have a guest coming up to answer some of your questions,、uh, you know that the generations.、Uh, Of our parents and us is really different, and they may have their expectation that we need to fulfill all their、uh, Chinese traditions, something like that. So, how we can fulfill their expectation, and at the same time, we can control our costs、uh, and also budget, because uh, we um, really have too much to spend on, and this is、um, really our financial concern. And、another question is:、um, I would like to ask, what is the、um, recent trend of wedding planning?、Um, as I know that many couples would like to、um, choose to organize、um, lunch buffet or cocktail party instead of、um, dinner banquet. So, I, instead,、um, this kind of、um, party will be、uh, cheaper than wedding banquet at night. Yeah. You heard there from Money Talk Extra listener Jenny, who's getting married in December. She's planning her dream wedding with her husband-to-be, Eric. There are a lot of Chinese traditions to follow, which are very expensive, but they have different expectations. She would like a grand family wedding, but Eric wants to save money and have a less expensive wedding. To help them resolve their differences, Jimmy went to speak to Andrew Law, director of Nippon Weddings. Honestly, there's a wide range of how much a wedding costs. It can be as low as one hundred thousand or as high as over one million. Uh, especially Chinese decision, Rachel's.、Uh, this may be more most of parents' concerns. Uh, but uh, at the same time, parents need to know all these Chinese tradition rituals need to have the special arrangement, which requires people, place, and items, which all have their own cost. But at the meantime, most of the couples would like to have a dream wedding. They prefer to have a high-quality ceremony, or even need to have everything perfect, such as banquet, wedding photo, video, makeup, wedding gown, etc. One only one single item, it is not that cost much. Maybe only say few thousand, 
or up to ten thousand maximum. But in total, put it all together, it costs quite a lot of money. So that how to balance between parents and our own requirements is an issue. Uh, so that I highly recommend during the planning stage of the wedding, try to list out all the requirements and associate the costs, or use more professional terms, budget planning. Yes, and get them and get the parents to agree on the list. Yes, right? yes, that's most important. Once you have the budget, uh, every concerned parties, of course, uh, included your parents, uh, your families, okay, yourself, need to agree on this. Uh, at that moment of time, effective communication is the key to reduce tension between the two families. Especially, some parents say keep it simple, but in their mind they want A, B, C, and D. Actually, yes, yes, always like this. <laughs> and uh, another point um, mentioned by uh, Jenny is that um, about the trend of the wedding meal. Um, is it that more people tend to choose cocktail or lunch? Is it way more uh, cheaper than uh, a wedding banquet at, at dinner time? Yes, that's true. More people go for lunch and cocktail now. Uh, from the cost point of view, cost can be half of that of the traditional dinner because of the duration of the lunch and hotel is shorter than the dinner. Uh, and you know, hotel is a business organization. Uh, that hotel can be do one more business, uh, one at the morning, one at the lunch, or even one at the dinner uh, on that so-called lucky day, right? Not that much lucky day uh, during the year. Uh, as mentioned before, as long as the arrangement is communicated uh, well with the parents and the relatives, some parents are more open-minded and willing to accept uh, such lunch or cocktail, but some may not, of course. But most important is the communication. Uh, I am a wedding planner and also a wedding photographer. I have experienced many wedding ceremonies. Most of them, the bride, to start back up at the early morning, such as 6 o'clock. Wow, okay. And then, well, they can only go to bed at midnight or something. Yes, definitely. The wedding banquet is normally finished at around maybe 11 p.m. or even later. Oh, you can imagine, okay, how long, how many hours the bride and the groom need to keep your smile. <laughs> That's Andrew Law of Nippon Weddings with some good advice on how to keep the cost of your wedding under control. Many cautious investors like to invest in bonds. For the last three decades, bonds have been in a bull market and provided steady returns. But now interest rates are rising around the world, including here in Hong Kong. That has led to a recent sell-off in global bond markets. So what is the outlook for bonds, and what are the considerations you should take into account when investing in bonds? The other day I spoke to Tony Watson, who is Vice President of the Hong Kong Society of Financial Analysts, Tony has worked in Asian credit markets for 20 years. So what are some of the considerations of investing in bond markets before you take the plunge? Yeah, um, it's uh, actually not a lot different than uh, a lot of other uh, investment classes. Um, you know, first of all, you've got to think about uh, your risk level, um, the amount of liquidity you're going to need, uh, the amount of uh, how immediate your cash needs are going forward. Um, and uh, also um, the amount of income you're going to need. Um, if you can live with a little bit of risk, uh, obviously uh, you're going to get uh, rewarded. Um, but uh, if you're more conservative, 
uh, you'll have to do with a little bit less income. I think, uh, as you alluded to in your intro, uh, interest rates are going up, and that does uh, lend into some considerations about how you want to structure your portfolio. So when we think about factors that move bonds, clearly interest rates are one of them. What, what sort of factors do cause the fluctuations in bond markets? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, interest rates is the one that everyone has uh, their eye on. And certainly for most of your listeners, that's probably the key thing they want to watch. Um, for those who want to uh, push the limits a little bit and uh, move down the credit curve, as we say, into more risky investments, um, you really have to start looking into the um, repayment ability of the underlying uh, issuer, that is the company or the, uh, the bank or the, the government that issues those bonds. Uh, because certainly, um, if the ability to repay weakens, then the price of those bonds will go down. And this is what we call the credit risk. Absolutely. Governments tend to have the best credit rating and then you start moving down through large blue chip companies and then more risky um, companies. But those more risky companies, they're the ones that could also provide under the right circumstances quite big returns, but also big losses, can't they? That's absolutely right. And uh, key to uh, not getting burned is really just doing your homework. It's old-fashioned uh, shoe leather type investment homework. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, bond investing in that space is not a lot different than being uh, an old-fashioned community banker. You really have to get to know the people um, who you're lending to, i.e. whose bonds you're buying. Um, you've got to understand their business, uh, what makes them tick, uh, and uh, you know ultimately what can uh, harm their ability to repay you. And there's also a currency risk in some cases as well, isn't there, if you want to buy bonds that are not denominated in Hong Kong dollars or US dollars where we have the peg? Absolutely. Uh, actually, in Asia, ex-Japan, uh, the majority of the bonds outstanding are non-US dollar, um, obviously, and, and, and non-euro, non-pound. Uh, uh, they are denominated in what we call local currencies, uh, where there is quite a bit of uh, currency risk if your ultimate risk currency is uh, a hard currency uh, target. And how big are the global bond markets? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Short answer, um, uh, about double the size of equity markets. Now, the problem is it's, it's difficult to tell precisely because uh, bonds are traded in what we call the over-the-counter market, uh, not in a stock exchange type setting where every issue is registered, every trade is registered. Um, these are uh, traded into a, in a venue a little bit more akin to a wet market here in Hong Kong. Um, so uh, there's no central registry for all the bond issues around the world, and there's, uh, except in the U.S., there's no platform for registering trades. So pulling together bits of information, we see it's about 99 trillion uh, U.S. dollars, uh, uh, U.S. dollar equivalent, uh, the size of global bond markets. But uh, uh, global equity markets are about half of that, so about 45 uh, trillion. Now, if you've been an investor in bonds, they have been in really an incredible bull market for quite a long time, haven't they? Maybe three decades or so. We've seen this continuous rise in bond prices and falls in, in yields. And that's accelerated since the financial crisis when central banks have cut interest rates. But now we've started to see a correction. Um, interest rates are going up. Some people are now saying that bull run is, is now over. What are your thoughts? Well, certainly it's not going to be the one-way trade it's been for, uh, you know, essentially since uh, 1980. Um, uh, that said, it being the end of the bull market, 
I don't necessarily see the beginning of a bear market. I think we're in a, a period of uh, lower rates for longer. A uh, key driver there, I believe, is uh, global demographics. Uh, right now in uh, developed markets, uh, you've got aging populations, pension funds no longer looking to build a- equity assets in order to get capital appreciation, but starting to toggle over to income generation, which is uh, demand for bonds. And how can you lock in better income as rates go up? Yeah, there's a couple of ways of doing that. Um, uh, one is called a laddered strategy and the other is a barbell strategy. Now, um, if you don't fancy yourself a market timer, uh, you just want a, a mechanical way to uh, protect yourself, you do something called a laddered strategy, which is basically buying bonds at regular maturity. So in your portfolio, you'd have some maturing in one year, some in three years, some in five years, 15, and so on. And as each maturity comes due, you just roll it forward to your furthest maturity or to a spot where you see a gap in your maturity profile. That way, um, you know, you always have some cash uh, in the pipeline ready to invest in case, you know, rates go uh, go higher at the long end or if they're not so interesting at the long end and that cash is coming due, you can just roll it over at the short end until your timing is right. That's a laddered strategy. A barbell strategy is when you have a big chunk of your portfolio, say 50% invested in the very long end, but you keep a lot at the short end, um, under under three years, say, with a big chunk in the one-year space. So if you really fancy yourself a market timer and you think rates are about to spike up, you want to keep a lot of liquidity at hand. When those rates shoot up, you can just pump it back into the market. And the impact of the Fed raising rates, we've already had a couple of rate rises now this year. The Fed is talking about another one before the end of the year. How does that affect your strategy for investing? Yeah, um, I think uh, you know, the, the impact on the market of uh, Fed rate r- rises uh, for the time being is going to be fairly muted. Um, what could really cause some volatility is how uh, the quantitative easing is, is unwound. And, you know, to that end, um, uh, you know, I would keep a little bit of uh, cash at the ready, you know, for those uh, short, sharp dislocations which could come about because we are in, uh, in uncharted territory here. Um, we have seen a couple of instances in the past few years where markets have uh, uh, sold off rather sharply uh, as a result of uncertainty as to um, where we are in the, in the uh, uh, Fed cycle. And let me ask you finally, Tony, about emerging markets. Mm. Are bonds a good way of getting into emerging markets? Yeah, um, bonds are a useful way to get into emerging markets. I would say neither good nor bad. Um, they do provide um, a very good way of diversifying your portfolio, uh, certainly at the sovereign level. So as you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, buying into a sovereign bond is probably the safest way to get into a particular country. Um, if you move down the credit curve a little bit, um, you're willing to do a little bit of work, uh, I'd certainly look at bank bonds. Um, they are a very good way of getting uh, exposure to all sectors of the economy because when you think about it, the job of a bank is to extend credit to all sectors of the economy, be it SMEs, be it mid-caps, be it large caps, uh, and in all uh, industries as well. So if you buy the bond of a bank, it automatically gives you all that exposure. Thank you very much for listening to Money Talk Extra this week. Next week on the programme, we'll look at commuting. I'll take a look at the costs involved in buying and running a car. Jimmy Lamb talks to a Money Talk Extra listener to help them save money on their commute to work. 
And in our investment segment, I'll look at trading foreign currencies. So please do join Jimmy Lamb and me at the same time next week. In the meantime, this is Peter Lewis wishing you a great weekend. Music